Please open up your Bibles and turn them over to the book of Ruth. There we resume our study this morning. It is just after the book of Judges in your Old Testament. Uh, we, we began looking at that last week before our brother and friend Christian uh, preached last Sunday in light of the communion service, and we took a small break from Ruth. Now we are back there this morning. We'll pick up where we left off in chapter 1. But as I spent some time doing the last time I was with you uh, preaching, set in the context of Ruth, in your English Bibles, Ruth follows the book of Judges, and it does so very, uh, or because of the fact that Ruth is set contextually, as I made mention of, in the time of the Judges. And so chronologically, the way that our English Bibles are put together, Ruth follows Judges because Ruth is set in the time of the Judges. But as I told you the last time we were together speaking about Ruth, that, that it's set in the period of the judges is of extreme importance when we start to evaluate the truth therein. Uh, Gardner, the worship team, has done a fantastic job in helping us weave together themes and ideas through singing that are present in Ruth. And why do we cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel? Well, because Ruth paints a picture of what it means to be devastated, of what it means to be desolated, of what it means to be in need of a Redeemer, of someone who can come and give the mercy that we need. And so Ruth is a book about mercy. It is a book about redemption. It's a book about devastation. It's a book about suffering and hardship. And it's a book about what it means to find joy in the midst of all these different seasons of possible lamentation. And so in that sense, I can't think of a better text for us in the world in which we live to come back around to again and again. As I've said before, it is a short book that packs a powerful punch because it is leading us to the Messiah. The very last chapter of Ruth will begin that genealogical look toward the son of David, the rod of Jesse, who was to come into the world. And so that is why we're looking at Ruth and that we find ourselves this morning beginning to unpack the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. So without further delay, let us turn our attention now to the Word of God. We'll, we'll be looking this morning at Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 to 13. So starting in verse 6, beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake 
that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So as a reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word. It is poignant. It pierces. It, it strikes a chord of despair in our very hearts and minds. And yet there is truth rising through the ashes of this, truth of a sovereign goodness that is boundless and that meets us in our most desperate hour. Help us to see that with clarity this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that is a daily blessing of God is mercy. And we think about it, we consider it. Jeremiah writes in the book of Lamentations, for his mercies are new every morning. And then he tags on to that as the, the fruit of that reality is the great statement, great is his faithfulness. Jeremiah tags God's faithfulness, his fidelity to his people. God is the great amen to his people. What he tags as that as God's daily mercy the mercies that you and I depend on daily, and we do, you and me. When we think about mercy, what is, what is mercy? Well, it's God's compassion for a people that need His intervening power in our weakness. It's God's compassion for a people that need His intervening power in our weakness. And so when we look at what mercy is, there's not a soul in this room, I dare say, that wouldn't say, yeah, we need mercy. And I don't just need it sometimes, we need it all the time. But we celebrate mercy, right? When God has been visibly mercy to us or to a friend. Like my mom in, in her Bible study group had, had a woman who was diagnosed with cancer. It was the doctors just gave her a death sentence. A few weeks later, they said, either we made a, a mistake or a miracle has happened. We find no cancer markers in your blood anywhere. It is a mercy. And we celebrate that, that someone who thought one thing has now been given another. But here's the thing I find among Christians, and this is most true of myself, that we often celebrate mercy until it becomes costly. The more costly the mercy, the harder it is to celebrate. You've heard me mention before Sheldon Van Auken's book, A Severe Mercy, we understand what it's like that sometimes we go through a deep and desperate and hard trial where we feel shredded in the process, and yet only by hindsight when we look back do we see the merciful God at work pushing us in a direction that we didn't maybe even know we needed to go. It's a hard road to walk. Maybe we get the, the diagnosis or, or, or the information or, or the, the news from a friend or, or from, through a particular relationship that seems contrary in our minds and hearts to God's goodness, and yet it ends up being God's goodness because it takes us to a place that we would never have gone. Beloved, I know I've referenced this book before, but it just bears repeating here. Jerry Sitzer's book, A Grace Disguised, again, if you still have not gotten that book and read it, get the book and read it. Because he says in there, after losing his mom, his wife, and his daughter, he makes the statement that is one of the most powerful things I've ever read in print. He says, I'm a better husband, father, and son than I ever could have been had I, had not, had I, had, had I not walked through this most desperate hour. What he would tell you and me is that behind the frowning providence of heartache and death, 
he found the mercy of God. Now let's not go looking for hardship to find mercy, but let's also not overlook hardship as a mercy. Deliverance and provision, they delight the soul, but hardships are rarely seen as mercy. We often tend to think of them more as a curse. But when we remember that grace is not always easy, we also should remember that mercy is not always palatable, at least for us in a moment. Some of the richest mercies come at a very, very high price. You know why? Because one of the best mercies God can give us is to destroy our idols. And when idols are being snatched down, it is painful. It is not without cause that Peter says, and this is a rough paraphrase, that he who suffers in the body is through with sin. Now, we can make a reference to Christ in that, that Christ suffered in his body so that we could defeat sin, but it also, there's an application there for us as human beings, that to be done with sin, to be done with idolatry, is to suffer a bit because we're having to put our flesh on the chopping block. We're having to put our flesh on the altar. So when we think about mercy and, and the way the Bible paints it, in the Bible, mercy and devastation aren't always mutually exclusive. How do we know that? Well, if you take some time this afternoon and you go back and you read the book of Judges, where this book is set in context, and you see in those days there was no king in Israel and each man did what was right in his own eyes, and what happens? Oppressors are raised up, and the people cry out. And then the Lord gives them a judge, and the judge goes and defeats said oppressors and gives people freedom. What is God doing? He's taking devastation so that the people will seek Him as King and Lord for mercy. And Judges is not the only place you'll find this, but it is a very poignant example. How about Genesis? Joseph. I referenced Joseph before in recent weeks. It bears repeating here. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He goes to the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife accuses him, throws him in prison. There in prison, he meets men who can recommend him to Pharaoh. He is recommended to Pharaoh. He interprets dreams for Pharaoh. What he says comes to pass. Joseph single-handedly puts a plan by the power and wisdom of God in motion to save Israel from devastation. And through this famine, Joseph's family comes to Israel. Joseph and his family are reunited. Later on, the Israelites are put into slavery and bondage by Egypt. A few hundred years later, Moses comes along as the deliverer, the God-man, the mediator of the Old Testament who comes whom God gives a covenant through to bring the people to freedom. You see what I'm doing here? You see the, the tapestry of Old Testament narrative? It's all woven together by mercy and devastation. And those are not two clearly separate threads. Those threads are bound together and woven through the whole story. And you don't just see it there. You see it in myriads of places. And it's a beautiful picture. So that we know that what is severe in a moment, can be eternally transformational. What hurts in the present can actually cultivate joy and life. We see this in Ruth. We see this family. We're all, we've, all we've read thus far is the devastating part. We're going to be coming back around to something that's hopeful. But I'm taking the devastating part intentionally slowly. So I want it to seep in. I want us to feel it. I want us to feel that when Naomi says, 
the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, that we don't just let those be words on a page, that we feel the depth of despair that's dripping from that statement. You don't raise your hand. But how many of you have felt that way? How many of you have been in a moment where maybe you wouldn't have articulated it like that, but looking back on it, you go, man, I have felt that depth of devastation before. I'm sure many of us in this room probably have. Here's the deal that Ruth is pressing towards, the goal, I should say. There's a richer blessing in the end. Those richer blessings don't come without the hard circumstance. Ruth really is about remaining hopeful when hope seems lost. Many of you struggled there. I've told you some time ago that I'd started praying that the Lord would make me supremely hopeful that uh, June had been reading The Great Gatsby, and I'd forgotten that the way that Nick Carraway described uh, Jay Gatsby as the most hopeful man I ever met. And I thought, man, that should be descriptive of Christians. We should be the most hopeful men and women that people ever meet. So I'm praying that for myself. I hope you're praying that for you and for me. And But Ruth is a great reminder that there is hope in hard times, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy and that we're going to, you know, have cotton candy and bubble gum. It's not going to be a picnic, but the hope is real, and it's there if we would but press in. We all need mercy, but sometimes we need a mercy that cuts a bit deeply. Like for me, if you ask me about my testimony, what I tell you is in August of 1999, when I'm laying on a concrete bench in the Dothan City Jail, and I'm thinking about all that I've just done and where I'm probably headed, which at the time, I was almost sure I was going to prison, God had me in that jail cell. That did not feel like mercy to me. It felt like punishment and cursing. I mean, it kind of was a punishment. I was being stupid. But it was mercy, because in that jail cell, God began to capture my heart and draw me out of that space. And I was there, but now I'm here. And not because of what I've done, but because of what the mercy of God has done in me, even at times when it's cut me deeply. And it will cut us more still. God prunes. He does. And He is willing to slay those parts of us that rebel against Him. Why? for the sole purpose of transforming us more into the image of Christ. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see in our text this morning. It's this. God's mercy really is our hope in hopeless times. That God's mercy really is our hope in hopeless times. So there there are two aspects of mercy this morning from this particular paragraph that I want us to look at. And the first one is community, the mercy of community. So as we're here gathered this morning, we're kind of experiencing that community to some degree. All right, we're here gathered in this fellowship, whether we're members of this church or regular visitors or this is your first time or second time, it doesn't matter. What we're experiencing here this morning is a deep sense of community, and I want you to grasp the mercy therein, because within this community is different walks of life. There is a sea of diversity here, and I mean diversity as it's really meant. I don't mean the common usage of diversity, which relegates it to one, one idea, but a, a diverse sense of experience, perspective, um, livelihood, all kinds of different 
are all kinds of diversity in this room, and yet we come together for a common purpose. Beloved, that is a mercy of God. So that though we struggle, even by God's hand, which is what's happening here, that we understand that that community, that relationship, they're gifts to us. This is not uh, an unfamiliar note with you from me. I sound this often, and here it's, it's so important. So when we open up the text, we're right in verse 6, then she arose, that is, Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them uh, literally bread, lechem, for the second part of Bethlehem, lechem, giving them food. This is what Naomi has heard. And so when we think about Naomi and her daughters-in-law, again, the devastating pictures before us, there's, there are no husbands, there are no sons. We're talking about an, an agrarian culture where uh, the, the men in the house worked the fields and, and they provided. And so you find these women, and we're already, we've already told that the uh, men have died, and so you find these women in the fields of Moab getting ready to go back to Judah. They're sticking together. They're having to fend for themselves. And the very first thing we take from this is, is look at them. Naomi and her two Moabite daughters-in-law are not isolated. They're not by themselves. They have company. Now, they need help. It's not as if it's not painful, but they have this community in hard times where they're not alone. There are times in biblical narrative where God does isolate characters. Elijah has been one of those. Where God sends them out by themselves, Jesus had to face many times of isolation. That's not the picture here. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah at this point are not isolated. They have relationships. And relationships need to remain a mutual blessing and encouragement. That's what helps us in the storm. As you've heard me say so many times before, I'm going to say it again, this repetition is the mother of learning. Our natural inclination when times are hard is to back away. But what the Scriptures would have us do is actually to press in. And in the South, we back away because we don't want to embarrass anybody. We don't want to make anybody feel awkward. And yet we have to risk it, don't we? We have to risk it. And hey, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't love it either. Sometimes I just want to back away, and though I know I need you in my life, I'd kind of like you to leave me alone. But that's not God's gift. God's gift is community. We need to be wise, but we need to pursue. But look at the language here. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. Now, we don't know how Naomi heard this. All we know is that we hear that the Lord had visited his people. So you're getting, your, you're getting a glimpse of mercy here. God has lifted the famine. He has visited his people. He's provided food for the people in Israel or Judah, and Judah specifically. That's where Naomi was from. So that's the, that's the picture that we have here. God in his mercy has given Naomi community. God in his mercy has visited his people in the midst of famine. And so look at what we have here. And I love the way that the writer, uh, I love that the writer writes it this way. She heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord, that is Yahweh, the covenant God, had visited his people. She doesn't just say that he gave bread. She doesn't just say he gave food. What she says is, 
is that she has heard that the Lord has visited his people. Now, the fruit of that visitation is provision in a famine. But one of the things that we take from this is the, uh, the centrality of the presence of God with his people. So the core of mercy is what? That we're not alone. The core of mercy is what? That Jesus says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The core of mercy is what? Is I am your God and you are my people. The core of mercy is I am Emmanuel, God among you. And so that's what we see. So Naomi hears this. She hears that God had visited his people, had given them food. So what does she do? She set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. To Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. So there's physical bread there, but God has visited his people. So there's spiritual bread there. Naomi doesn't know yet of the spiritual realities of everything that's going to happen. She may be aware of Boaz at this point, but she doesn't know the full ramifications of everything that's going to happen. And the way we know that is because she already thinks that her cause is lost by verse 13. But you know what this reminds us? What does Naomi need? Does she need bread? Yeah. Sometimes people need some groceries, plain and simple. And there, there is beauty in that type of practical service to one another. But, beloved, we, we, get so, we get so caught up in the binary. Either they need the physical ministry or they need the spiritual ministry. And, and really, we need both. Right? We need both. And, and, and in most cases, we need both. Even when my pantries are empty, I still need the bread of life. And even when my pantries are, are full, or even if I am trusting in Jesus and my pantries are empty, maybe you can help me fill my pantries. So it's never just a one or, it's a both and. And Naomi needs both. She needs to go home where she can fend for herself, but she needs to be confronted with the living God. And so as she's contemplating this, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters in law to, to return to the land of Judah. What is the land of Judah? Well, that's where the mercy of God is calling them to go, to meet with him. But Judah is home. What else is it? It's the land of promise. What else is it? It's the, it's the provision of God. What else is it? It's the place where the people of God are. It's not the land of the enemy. It's the community of those who believe. Now, in Judges, that's going to be a smaller community because we've been told about the people and the context. However, where does Naomi need to be? She needs to be where God and his people are. Where do we as believers need to be? Where God and his people are. So it's setting down a, a rule for living that is true both then and now, that the people of God belong where the people of God and God are, this land of promise, this covenant people this community with God. And when we get back around to this, this is mercy. What is mercy and devastation? That we are not on our own, that we have been bought body and soul by Jesus Christ and inserted into a family. And you know what the beauty of it is? Sometimes there's some weird folks in that family. And sometimes you are the weird one and you just don't realize it. 
I'm very weird. If you get to know me on a personal level, I'm a weird guy. <laughs> and there are some times where we can see the supernatural connection of the relationships. Like we wouldn't naturally connect with some people, but we do because it works, because God in His mercy has drawn us to those people or that person where we see things about them and about ourselves we would never have learned. And that's the beauty of it. So embrace the weirdness and embrace the fact that in some contexts, you're going to be the weird one. And that's okay. They're returning to Judah, this community of covenant people. And when we see this, here we go, but Naomi, or, or yes, they're returning to the land of Judah, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go and return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And so the mercy of God, it calls us back. They return to Judah, and by, and by God and by mercy, God blesses, as we, God blesses his people as we lay down our lives for him and to sacrifice for other people. There's a lot of sacrifice going on here. Naomi has made some sacrifices in her life. Now these two daughters-in-law are going to try to make some sacrifices for Naomi. And I want us to catch the beauty of this. They were going to go with her. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And then that, that extends into verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Now, I want you to, I want you to juxtapose that beautiful prayer with Naomi says, but the Lord has gone out against me. She's believing something better for somebody else than she's believing for herself. That's not an uncommon issue in Christianity. We can believe better for other people because it's easier. It's harder to believe these things for ourselves. Naomi says, go home. Return to the house of your mother. I want you to appreciate what she's doing here. She's got a claim on these girls, these ladies, these women. They were married to her sons. They were family now. She has got a claim on them to come with her. Those are two extra bodies who can help her scavenge for food, who she can use, but she doesn't do it. As embittered as she is, there is still mercy in her own mind and heart. She says, go home to your mother's. She's releasing her claim. This is an act of sacrifice. And what is it driven by? It's driven by love. I'm convinced of it. She sees you have served me and the dead well. I'm not going to ask you to lose what hope you have in having a quote-unquote normal life by coming with me. No, I'm sending you back to your mother's house where you might salvage what's left of your life. Beloved of God, she is ridding herself of the last vestiges of human hope that she's got, that she knows of. This is a powerful moment, what she's doing. Despite how she may view herself and despite how she gets off track thinking God is against her, this is beautiful. And so she tries to send them on their way. But she gives up this beautiful prayer. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voice and wept. 
that the Lord may grant you rest, that the Lord would deal kindly with you. Those two things. The first, deal kindly with you, you've heard me mention it before, it's that Hebrew word chesed, steadfast love, it's covenant love. She's asking God's covenant love to reach these Moabite women. Oh, at this point, race and ethnicity has nothing to do with it. These two women have been faithful to me. I don't care where they're from, Lord. Let your covenant love touch them. Beloved, that is a beautiful prayer. That's a wonderful prayer. Naomi at least understands that God is sovereign enough to bless these two foreign women for their love for her. But then what does she ask for them? Give them husbands. Let them find rest. What does rest mean in this context? A home that is peace-filled, a home that is stable where they're not hungry, a home that by God's mercy they could have children in, a home where they could have as best as they can a life of normality where they understand what it's like to have protection and have provision them or provision. She is giving them up for their own happiness, though it's a costly mercy for her. But how do they respond? No, we will return with you to your people. Now do you see the other side of this? This is beautiful mercies that are going on here. No, Naomi, we'll give all that up if we have to, to love you and be with you and go with you to your people. We're going to come back around to what Ruth says, God willing, next week. But for now, we're beginning to see what commitment actually looks like when we say no for the sake of another. When we say yes to something knowing this is going to cost me and it may cost me a lot. This is the mercy of community. It sacrifices convenience, comfort, and all sorts of other things for the sake of others. That's because community is given by God, and it's a mercy for every single one of us. It's meant to be a rich gift. So that when things like what Joseph says at the end of Genesis, what you intended for harm, God meant for good. So that when Jesus says, talks about no greater love has anyone than this, than he who lays his life down for his friends. He did it in a way that, not, that can't be repeated. We get to live in the emulation of that because that's what mercy looks like in the context of community. Very briefly, these last few verses, verses 11, 12, and 13, I'm going to read these together. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So if there's mercy in community, there's also mercy in weakness. And this is beginning to build a case here. Naomi's command is return. Why? She's lost sight of God's power. She's lost sight of what God may or may not do here. 
all she can see is the hard circumstance. And hey, let's don't cast stones. If you'd lost your husband, you'd lost your sons, the promised land was in a famine, evil was all around you, and you're stuck with two foreign women knowing how that's going to go over when you get back to Judah, I can imagine that you would probably feel a little desperate too. I would. I'll put two hands up. I would, I would despair. I mean, I would probably be, be crying in my wheat, saying, what are we going to do? Because it feels overwhelming, and even to read it, it looks overwhelming. So Naomi has lost sight. There's no sons left. There's nobody in Naomi's lines that, that she can offer for marriage to these young girls. What she's telling them is it's not practical for you to come. There's nothing I can do for you. I can't give you what, what, what you need, at least what you need in the context of this culture. And she says, even if I were to get married and conceive, you'll be too old by then. I can't ask you to wait that long. Naomi really is being self-deprecating here. She's not willing to put the burden all on them. But then she ends this out. She brings this to bear by saying, God is against me. And you know why she's telling them that? You don't want to go with me because if you go with me, it's going to be worse for you. You're better off not going with me. This is where she's wrong because she can't see the future. She doesn't know that Boaz is back in Judah. She doesn't know of Boaz's heart and willingness to be faithful to what they had been taught in the Scriptures. She doesn't know that through uh, that Boaz and, and Obed and, and Jesse and, and David and Solomon and all these different people are going to come that's going to lead to the lineage of Jesus. She can't possibly know any of that. So she speaks out of deep misunderstanding of who God is. Beloved, but we give her, I can give her a little, a little grace here because severe mercies are hard mercies, but mercies nonetheless. What is God doing? What has God done? He's taken away everything that she could depend on, any idol she could raise up, anything that she could throw down that might smack of self-help. He's ripped it away. Now she has nothing but the Lord. Perhaps you find yourselves in those places from time to time. They're not fun. None of us relish it. Ask anybody who's in that season who is clinging to the Lord. They'll tell you they're clinging to the Lord. But those are hard days from time to time. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. No, my daughters. It is exceedingly bitter to me. And I want us to feel the bitterness this morning as we bring this to a close. Because that is a hard spot to be in. And yet, I would say this, that our weakness doesn't keep God from moving. You and I, we're inherently weak, needy, and short-sighted. If God's mercy depended on our ability to recognize it for what it is, we would never experience it, or we would rarely experience it. Let me put it that way. The context of our weakness is God's favorite time to act, and you see this again and again. Look, we are where we are in Ruth, which is going to lead to, you know, after the period of the judges, what do the people of Israel want? They want a king. They want a king. They want a king. Where does that begin? In Chana, she's at the temple. She wants a son so badly. She wants a child so bad, and she can't. 
the Lord has closed her womb. She weeps and wails and weeps and wails, and the Lord gives to her her wish and prayer, Samuel. And through Samuel, Saul is anointed. And through Samuel, David is anointed. We see that Samuel is the product of weakness. Isaac is the product of weakness. Jacob and Esau are the product of weakness. Joseph is the product of weakness. Shall I go on? John the Baptist is the product of weakness. And when we see these people in, the, in Scripture, what are they remembered for? They're remembered for being mighty oaks in the forest. Well, except for Saul. He's kind of more of a dead tree, but... We remember these people for being mighty oaks in the forest of God. God's favorite starting point in our lives is weakness because when we're weak, all we have is mercy. And so this morning, maybe you're in that, maybe you're in that space and the mercy you're experiencing hurts. Here's what I would say. Sometimes it takes a severe mercy to teach us how deeply we need the redeeming work of Christ. What is our hope in hopeless times? We are not our own that we belong body and soul to Jesus. Ruth, Naomi, and eventually Boaz are going to teach us this again and again. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning. It's rich, it's beautiful, it's deep. We could spend more time. There is more spade work even to be done in this little paragraph we've covered this morning, and yet your words ring true to us today. That a severe mercy is a beautiful mercy because though it is painful, it is mercy nonetheless. As the book of, or the prophet Hosea says, that you have torn us in the pieces and you have injured us, but you will return, you will heal us, you will bandage our wounds, and in a short time, you'll restore your people. Father, we believe it. Help our unbelief. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.